Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I've been curious about this week's guest for a while now, Glenn Beck. Glenn is a conservative radio and television talk show host. Whether or not you like his opinion or the way he frames his facts, when you listen to him, you immediately sense that he has that gift that can gather a large crowd. I was particularly struck by the course of his career. After bouncing around America from radio station to radio station, he became a firebrand for conservatism. We all recognized on CNN, then he moved to Fox, and then in 2011, he went out on his own in a revolutionary way, a way that most people in the industry thought was absolutely nuts. He formed a subscription-based internet TV network Basically, that means he started streaming himself around the time Netflix started streaming content. In no time, hundreds of thousands of fans on the right immediately followed Glenn straight to the blaze. The thing that strikes me about Glenn is his ability to change. That includes recovering from alcoholism. Glenn is also a New York Times bestselling author who's got a book coming out called Addicted to Outrage. This book gets at the national turmoil that we have because people on both sides of the political spectrum simply want to win at any cost and beat the other side into submission. It contains the realizations of a man whose rhetoric contributed to the problem and the thoughts of a man who is now trying to figure out how to fix it while he tries to come up with business adjustments that accompany these changes. I started out simply trying to find out what made Glenn Beck Glenn Beck, and I think you're going to immediately sense the tremendous empathy within him, even if you don't agree with his politics at all. I'm betting that once you hear his backstory, you're going to listen a little differently the next time you hear Glenn Beck's voice. I want to thank Squarespace and ZipRecruiter for the sponsorship that enabled me to start this podcast. Right now, let's get straight to Glenn Beck. If I took you way back, if I took you to when you're seven years old and I'm looking at a big movie screen and I want to see what it was like to be Glenn in, say, second grade, what am I looking at? I don't know. I think um, I think a sweet little kid. I think I was a good kid in second grade. I think it was a good kid, worked at my dad's bakery, you know, and what I could do. It was a family affair, so we all worked. Um, it's funny you bring up seven because uh, that year is the year I decided to do radio. Um, my mother, on that summer, I lived in Seattle, and it was it was always gray and rainy. And see, it was 310 cloudy days out of the year. So I'm inside on a summer day. I'm just watching cartoons or whatever. And my mom comes in. She hits the set, you know, turns off the TV, and she's like, go outside and play. And uh, she turns around, and I grumble under my breath. When you were a kid, you watched TV. And she said the most amazing thing. First, she turned around, and I was like, okay, don't talk back to mom. (laughs) (laughs) Then she said, no, when I was a kid, we didn't watch TV. And she 
told me this story about how we didn't have TV. And, you know, to a kid, I'm like, you're Wilma Flintstone. She even had a TV. Um, and uh, uh, she tells me this story about how they had this radio with grandpa and it had a green eye in the center and you would turn it on and the tube would warm up and the green eye would start to glow and grandpa would turn off all the lights and they would listen to the radio. And I was fascinated by this. I mean, you know, that's nothing like that uh, had I ever heard before on radio. So on my eighth birthday, she got me a record collection called The Golden Years of Radio. It was Orson Welles and Jack Benny and, and Fibber McGee's Closet and Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, and all of these great old radio shows. And I wore the grooves out. This is on a vinyl record? Yeah, yeah. And I'm eight years old. And I'm listening to it, and I, I listen to The Shadow. and That's, that's Larry King's favorite. Is it really? <laughs> yeah. It's Orson Welles. Uh, and, uh, Suspense. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, and you, I listen to those. And unlike television, your mind, your imagination is much more powerful than movies, television. I mean, now we're only getting to the place with CGI to where you can create anything and it's believable. But you, the greatest thing about the spoken word is it, and I think the same thing with a book, really well written, you know, uh, Cormac McCarthy kind of stuff, where it's beautifully written, it engages your imagination, and if it's written well or if it's spoken right, it paints the picture and it becomes a dance between the speaker and the listener or the writer and the reader, and it takes you to great places. And so I was fascinated by it. My grandfather was also, uh, you know, I like to say he was a great storyteller, but he was the best liar I'd ever met. <laughs> you know, there's stuff that my grandfather. Like what uh, would he? What would he do? Um, my grandfather was. Um, he tells so many stories that even to this day we don't know if they're true, <laughs> um, and he could talk people into really anything, um, and never to their detriment. You know, he just you'd always walk away from my grandfather feeling good. And you'd love him. But somehow or another, you probably just did something for him that he didn't want to do. For instance, he worked at, he worked at Boeing and, and uh, he was a machinist and he was the shop steward. And he would go, they had to make so many widgets and everybody had to machine so many widgets. Well, my grandfather would just go and tell people stories all day. And he'd take a widget with them knowing he wasn't stealing it. He'd just take one of their widgets and put it into his box. Then he'd go tell some other people some story, take one of their widgets, and I mean, they were paying him in widgets, you know? And and uh, and he was just great. And so I grew up at his knee with him telling stories, and I should have caught on that they weren't always true. You know, like, he'd tell me about the time, you know, that he had arrested Harry Houdini or whatever. And and I uh, the way I remember stories of him telling me is hearing my grandmother's voice from the kitchen. His name was Edward Jansen. And he would say, did I ever tell you the story about when I arrested Harry Houdini? And I'd be like, no. you re I didn't know you did that. What was that like? And I'd hear in the kitchen my grandmother say, Edward. <laughs> and then he'd stop. He'd look at the kitchen. And then he'd kind of 
he'd kind of wave me in a little bit and I'd get a little closer. Edward. And he'd wave me and I'd get a little closer and he'd tell me the story. Edward. Until I was right there, right next to him where he was practically whispering lies. And it, was, <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. So I've always enjoyed a good story. You, you know, in Ireland, in pubs where they love to tell stories, yeah. this, there's no seats with a back. They're all stools with the idea of people leaning, leaning in. in. Oh, and the, wow. the great storyteller makes yeah. the listener lean in. Yeah. And your, your grandpa yeah, just my, checked off. My grandfather was a great story to the point to where we're not even sure what's true and what's not. I mean, my grand, I would say things to my grandma. Grandma, remember the story grandpa used to tell? Is that true? I swear to you, everyone in the family, including his wife, would say, mm, could be, could be. We don't know what's true and what's not. So now you're, you've got this in your blood. Yeah. And that record seemed to set you off. You, so you knew, I'm going into radio. Yeah, I wanted to do radio. And I, but I wanted to do, you know. It was weird because what I what drove me to radio was storytelling and nobody was telling stories. And, um, you know, it was just disc jockeys. And so for the longest time, I was a disc jockey. By the time I was 18, I was doing mornings and programming a station and, um, you know, had some really good success in my 20s. But I really, um, the death of my mother when I was 15 kind of put me on a different course and um, what, what you know what you did an interview with uh, a friend of mine actually he's more than a friend his name's Alex Benayan oh yeah I like him wrote a book called The Third Door he's brilliant uh, all about success he dropped yeah, out of yeah. USC as you know the story I mentored him through that book did you really three nights a week hours at a time for years huh. and I'm listening to the interview you did with him and very early in the interview you asked him about his dad. His dad had just passed away. Yeah. And I could see, I, I knew how that would affect him. And his voice started to trail off. And you did something that was so kind. You went to break. You, you gave him that moment to recover. I, I don't know really what happened in the second after. But as a listener, I said to myself, this is more than being kind. Glenn understands something in a very deep way here. And you just mentioned the death of your mom, so I know that... I, I, um, I remember that moment, and what happened right after we turned off the mics was I said, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize it would hit you that hard. And the reason why is I did an interview probably 15 years ago with somebody who was, you know, you do an interview with this person, it was a big deal. And we were talking about alcoholism. And somebody in the somebody had just died from alcoholism. And, you know, so the press always calls, you know, who do we know that's a drunk? I know, let's call Glenn Beck. <laughs> and so they called me to to comment on this. And we're doing an interview. And I was really explaining what I thought people misunderstand about suicide and and about alcoholism. And this person, their, their, their eyes were just glassy. They weren't even listening to me. They just were preparing for the next question. And then I said, 
that I have experience with this because of my mother and my eyes welled up. I didn't expect it and my eyes welled up and she came alive. And now all of a sudden on live TV, we're not going to break. Closer, 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 closer. Oh, man. And she went for it. And I thought, and it was so ugly and grotesque and dirty that I'd never forgotten that. And now, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with, I'm good friends with Marcus Luttrell. And when I first interviewed him, it was raw. It was very raw. I never asked him, the reason why we're friends is he said, you're the only one that didn't ask me, did you break? How did they torture you? What was torture like? Because I figured that's pretty traumatic. If he, I know the audience is thinking that and wants it. If he wants to tell us, he'll tell us. I don't need to ask that. I don't think it's right to exploit things that people aren't ready yet to talk about. You need time. My father had just died uh, in the last couple of years, and he was not there for me emotionally when I was a kid, but I misunderstood my dad. At 30, when I start to sober up and change my life, we work really hard on our relationship. We become best friends. We call each other every day. We're talking about stuff and reading things together. And it just, he was my best friend. And then uh, about the time he turns 80, because I come from a, a family of abuse, he tolerates some stuff in the family that we had talked about before. And um, his wife, my stepmother, hit my sister, hit her. And, um, you know, it's just time for abuse to stop. At some point, time for abuse to stop. And it had stopped when we all had moved away. But we hadn't really talked about it. And I see my sisters just decay over time. They're just, they didn't believe in themselves for a long time. And it's taken them 50 years to, to be able to deal with it. And I, I told my dad at one point, after he, she hit her. And um, I talked to my dad and I said, Dad, this is being passed on to the other generations. This is now being, I'm seeing it in the grandchildren. It's got to stop. Somebody has to stand for the women in this family. If it's not you, and he's like, it's going to stop, it's going to stop, it's going to stop. About a year later, happened again, and um, I went to see my dad, and I said, Dad, I love you, but you've surrendered, and somebody in this family is going to stand up, and I'm standing with my sisters, and I'm standing against abuse, and I'm going to call a family meeting with all the grandkids. We do not accept this. This is not who we are. And we really didn't ever speak again. And it was hard. It was hard. Whoa. It was hard. How much of who you became goes back to the moment when you're 15? All of it. Good and bad. All of it. You know, and you... And, I don't think you can, at least I don't, I don't want to be, I, I avoided um, looking back on my past and my past mistakes, the things that had happened to me and happened because of me, 
or the things that I did. I, I didn't want to deal with any of that. And so it just started building up and building up and building up. And I became an alcoholic just to escape. And I, I became more and more mean to people because I thought I hated them. But in reality, I, I hated me. Uh, and everybody was kind of a reminder that I, you know, was whatever. And so I, you know, got to a point where all alcoholics get, and I finally had to admit a problem. And then took me a while before I was willing to go to places like, you know, my mom's death. And because um, we never talked about it. I mean, when my mom died, we moved in with my dad. And my it was all unspoken? My, my uh, stepmother forbade us from talking about my mother at all. So we did not talk about my mom at all, like within three weeks of her death. Uh, and so it, all of this stuff just festered for a long time. Oh, man, this stuff was just pushed down and you, yeah. you couldn't, no time to grieve, yeah. no... Nothing. You, you were able to go to the funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, couldn't share it. You couldn't talk about it. You couldn't go to your dad. You know, I, I've made a point. I'm a divorce guy because I was drunk. But um, my younger children are now, you know, in their 20s and 30s, I made a point of always talking to them about when I first started dating their mom and all the good times that we had together because I'm a product of divorce and suicide and I didn't get to talk about either of them. And I know that it would have meant a lot to me if I would have just heard my father talk and say the good things and the struggles later in my life between him and my mom. And so I had some perspective and I, and I knew that those times weren't sealed and you can't talk about it because of somebody's feelings. You know, I, I, I think it's important that you. I'm just talk. making this connection. Does the microphone then become to you the place where you can open up? You are the first person to ask what I think is the most obvious question. In my life, no one has ever asked that, and it's absolutely right. This is my best friend. This is, at 13, I started radio. At 13, it, it doesn't reject me. I can say anything into it. I can tell it my deepest, darkest secrets, and the room doesn't change. You know what I mean? I might get blowback on things, but it's a strange relationship. This never changes. I, that microphone never changes. So I can, I can tell it anything and it's been with me forever. It's the constant in my life. I've moved all over the country, which, you know, constant un upheaval in my life, constant. Um, yeah, because when you're in radios, Corpus Christi and Louisville and Baltimore, Philadelphia, Phoenix, everywhere, everywhere. I mean, it's that's the way radio used to be, um, and uh, it wasn't unusual. But it, and and I think part of that goes to the constant early in my life of running, running from something, running from when your parent is an alcoholic, when your parent 
isn't what you thought or what you wanted it to be, your other parent is kind of absent, there comes a time, especially if they become an alcoholic and kill themselves, there comes a time where you think, wrongly so, I guess that's who I'm destined to be. Because I come from that, so that's who I'm going to be. And I didn't want to be that. But I, I was becoming that. And I didn't like that. And I didn't know what to do. My, my father said something to me really important. He was abused as a kid. Uh, and then ran away from home at 16 and is living at the Y here in Los Angeles. And he's, he's raped repeatedly. He's a, in a oh, horrible man. life. None of it I knew about. And he, the only one he told was me. No one else in the family knew about it. And so I have a different kind of understanding um, of him. But the willingness to look into yourself and the willingness to say, I don't want to be this, isn't enough. My father said to himself, I will not abuse my children. And he didn't. He didn't become his dad because he distanced himself from us because he was so afraid of himself. Oh, man. He became his mother, the abused. Okay? And so it's not enough to say, I don't want to be that. When I was 16, I told my father in, you know, a rage, you know, a teenage, you know, rage. And I said, I'm never going to be like you. And I thought, oh, I got him. You know, that hurt him. And I went down and I slammed the door of my room. And he, a few minutes later, knocks on my door. And I uh, said, so come in. And uh, he's crying. And now I'm kind of feeling a little bad because maybe I, you know, I didn't mean to hurt him, you know, and really, you know. And uh, he says to me, I am more proud of you than I've ever been. Oh, now I'm like, oh, come on, dad. Don't, no, wait, no. And I said, excuse me? He said, and I didn't know his life this time. I didn't want to be my dad either. And he said, but son, I promise you one thing. If you don't find something or someone that provides you the model of what you do want to be, you unfortunately will be exactly like me. That stuck with me. And as I got older, I realized how right he was. I didn't do anything about it until I was in my 30s. But he was absolutely right. And that's, I think, part of the running was, you know, his distancing. I was becoming him. I was distancing myself from things that I was afraid of. I, am I going to turn out like, like my dad or my family? I'm afraid to raise my kids because I don't have that experience because I never had it with my dad. And, you know, when I had my son, we adopted a, a boy. This is 2002, three, somewhere in that area. Uh, four, I think. And he, I'm terrified. I'm terrified because it's a boy. I, I went fishing with my dad one time, once, and it was horrible. And I didn't know why. I found out later it's because he used to receive massive beatings, you know, in a fishing boat with his dad. Because uh, his dad would get drunk and just beat him. 
Uh, so I begged my dad to go fishing with us. Uh, we go fishing. And he took you once. Once. And it was such a horrible experience because my dad was just, I didn't know why, but as a little kid, my dad wasn't talking to me. He was like so awkward. It was horrible. It wasn't until I'm in my 30s that he tells me. And so I think part of that running was the same with him. He, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to go. He wasn't replacing it with any new information. So he became nothing, nothing. He wasn't abusing. He was nothing. And I think what he replaced it with, the only thing he knew was he loved his mother. Well, his mother was a silent victim who was sweet and kind and everything else. But they didn't talk about things. They didn't delve into it. She just silently took it. And that was my dad. And so now you're moving across the country to all these radio jobs, but you have the mic. Mm -hmm. you, you have that. It wasn't until I sobered up that I started really... I, I used it then to project something. And it's why I think while I was successful, I never had big success because the microphone knows when you're lying. The audience knows. They know. You can't spend as much time as, you know, people listen to you over time. They know who you are because you're expressing yourself. And so if they really listen, if they get bits and pieces, they won't. But if they really listen over time, that's gonna, not real. That's they're going to figure you out. Right. And, and I think that's also part of the keep moving, keep moving. Okay? Oh, man. Because I was not being, I was doing formulas. I knew how to draw a crowd. I knew what to say. I knew who my target audience it's like was. like the carnival barker to bring everybody yes. in. Yes, and at some point, the carnival barker needs to move on because there was like, okay, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Hold on just a second. <laughs> That's really not the tallest man in the world. <laughs> uh, so uh, when I, I sobered up, I wanted to get out of radio. You wanted to leave the microphone. Yeah, uh, because there was... There was no value in it to me. I still hadn't, I still hadn't really addressed all of my issues. I was kind of white knuckling it. I was trying to stay sober, but I was one of those people that was like, "No, there's no problem. There's no problem. I don't have a problem. My mom's death didn't affect me. There's no problem. My childhood's fine. Okay, just seal it off." Because I thought I had dealt with it by not dealing with it. You know, just wall it off. Wow. And I didn't like when people say, oh, my childhood, and because of that, I can't, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I still don't believe in that. But I do believe in discussing it. It's one of the reasons why I think we have race problems here in America. It's because it's not discussed. It's not discussed in any way to where it feels safe to discuss it. You know, what happens? Civil War, Abraham Lincoln dies. We don't discuss it. We don't then have a leader that can sit down and say, okay, let's all talk about what just happened. Lincoln's killed. That's the focus. Just let's end it. Let's just forget about it. There's bloodshed. We move on. Jim Crow happens. What happens? It gets worse and worse and worse. We have Martin Luther King. He's killed. Malcolm X is killed. The country's torn apart. 
We just say, okay, okay, all right, good. Here's the Civil Rights Act. Let's not talk about it. We haven't healed. We haven't healed. And it's not about giving somebody, uh, you know, reparations or anything else. It's just people sitting down and saying, wow, what happened? What, ha- what does that mean to you? And sincerely feeling empathy for the people who had a life that is totally different experience than mine in America. Totally different. I mean, I, I, when you have that, now you can go ahead and be who you were meant to be. But you do need to have that conversation in your own life. And then in the life of a nation, we can't silence each other and we can't demonize each other. We have to come together. Martin Luther King was 100% right then, 100% right now. Back then, Malcolm X was looking to win. Right now, you're going to get tired of winning. All we're doing on both sides is beat the other side. That leaves the country with 50% of the population feeling like they've lost. That's not going to be good. Reconciliation, coming together and dealing with it and saying, okay, together, how do we map this out? You look at the genocide in Rwanda. Can you think of anything worse than that? It was pretty bad. Pretty bad, right? Pretty bad. In my lifetime, pretty darn bad. I can't remember how it was a million killed in like 10 months. And it was neighbor, it was even husband and wife. Husband, uh, you know. From different tribes. From different tribes. Husband kills the wife. Wife kills the husband. Whatever it is. They're slaughtering people in the street. They're raping whole families in the street, then chopping them up and throwing the bodies away. Okay? Horrible. Can you imagine that? That's a future, that's a country that has zero future unless there's reconciliation. So, new president comes in, and nobody's really talked about it. They're still living in the communities. They know who raped and killed my family. So, they start trials. Now, what's going to happen? You have to try half the country. So, how do you do that? They have this tradition there that is is basically you gather around the the well, the center of the town with a big tree in the well, and you'd have a town meeting. And it was this, this tribal source of justice beyond the courts. This is ancient for them. And it was more of a, look, he said you did this. And this is really affected. And if you would say, okay, I did it, and I'm really, really sorry, and here's why I'm sorry. This is what it's made, this is what it's done to me, and let me help you find whatever I stole, or, you know, maybe I'll give it back to you, or whatever. That wasn't necessary, but it did play a role. If the person said, um, the person who was the victim said, I forgive you, it was done. So the president says, instead of going to court, there will be some court cases for the worst of the worst, but I urge you to go into your communities and start to do this ancient process. So 
here's this person. I, I met a guy, a woman whose entire family, the sisters, uh, the brothers and the father were killed, slaughtered um, right in front of her. The sisters were raped in front of her. Her mother was raped in front of her all by one guy, their neighbor. He did it right in front of their house in the street. She never saw her family and she was hiding. She watched it all. She knew who did it. And then the bodies were just dumped someplace and she didn't know where her family had been buried. She knew who it was. The key to this system is you have to, if you're the perpetrator, you have to turn yourself in. You have to go to the well and say, I want to confess something. Her neighbor goes to her door, says, can you come down for the community meeting? Uh-huh. He goes down and he confesses. He says, and this is where the bodies are buried. And I fully admit I did it. Here's why. And I can't live with myself and I'll take any justice you want. Out of the cases, and there were thousands of them, 80% forgiveness rate. 80. So when I met these two, they're still neighbors. Now try this on for size. He watches her children when she needs to go out and he's home. And she watches his children when he has to go out. They're best friends and best neighbors again. Now you tell me that's not a miracle. That's what happens when all we need and want is forgiveness and the truth. How did you find that connection within yourself to move ahead? Because it sounds like you're running, running, running. It almost sounds like you're bringing yourself to the well to... yeah. Only you're talking to yourself. So um, I, wrote a, I wrote a novel that is kind of this story. It's called The Christmas Sweater. And it's based on the true story of my childhood and my reconciliation with truth. The last Christmas I had with my mother, we were poor. I didn't really realize it until that Christmas. I knew we didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't think we were poor. And um, that Christmas, she, um, she got me for Christmas a sweater. I'm 15 years old, and the last thing I want is this, you know, handmade, stupid sweater. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm just this arrogant 15-year-old kid, you know. And that was the only present under the tree. And I just remember it being just an awful Christmas. And I... I took the sweater. I didn't even try it on, much to my shame. I didn't even try it on. And I remember I could still feel the fingers of my mother. as She she held it up. She said, does it fit? And I said, I don't know. And she picked it up out of the box, and she held it to my back. And I could still feel her fingers holding the sweater on my back to see if it fits my shoulders. And she's like, it looks like it's going to fit perfectly. She was so proud. All she wanted was me to say, and I did, but I didn't mean it, and she knew it. She just wanted me to say, Mom, thank you. Thank you. In retrospect, and because I've now lived it, where I couldn't afford anything for my kids, 
Christmas can make a parent feel like the biggest loser on the planet. If you can't afford just something that you want to give your kids, you can't afford it, you just, it's a lie, but you feel like you're just not a good parent. And so I know it because I've lived it now, but I know she was crushed. I took the sweater and I went into my room and I just, I think, dropped it on my bed. It, you know, I lay, on, I lay down on my bed and I'm, the sweater fell to the floor. And my mom comes in. She says, hey, it's about time to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. And she stops mid-sentence and she sees the sweater on the floor. And her eyes well up and she just said, she walked over, she picked it up. And she so gently folded it, and she put it on top of my dresser. And she said, please don't treat that like this, please. I immediately knew my mother loved me. My mother was tormented. Uh, my mother was hanging on by a thread, and that I had greatly disappointed her. And um, about two months later, she died. And that sweater haunted me, you know? And I didn't want to, you know, things like that build up in a person's life. And missed opportunities, stupid things, things you did that you shouldn't have done, et cetera, et cetera. Hurt of other people builds up. And um, so I didn't want to look at it. And I, I'm sobering up and I'm starting to read things. And I, I'm reading Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan's in the 90s. And, and he's an atheist. And he starts in the book, it's a brilliant book, but he's, he's talking about the Catholics. Well, I was raised Catholic, but I hadn't been in a Catholic church in I don't know how long. Okay? And I actually get pissed at that book. I remember snapping it close and throwing it down on the desk. And that shocked me. All of a sudden, I, I was noticing, wait, wait, why am I pissed at that book? Why am I suddenly defending something I don't even go to and I don't think I even believe in. And I picked the book back up and I started reading it some more. And I thought, you know, I've never even, I think I believe in God because I've been told God exists. I don't have a personal relation. I don't know anything about him really. And if he does exist, he'd want me to find him. But I don't really do anything because I'm afraid of opening doors. And then I have a dream. I just tried to paint this again just this last year, and I can, I've got a stack of these in a closet that I have, I, I just, I keep trying to paint this scene over and over again. It's just not right. In this dream, it starts with me standing in this cornfield, and it's the, all the broken stalks of corn, and it's, it's sepia-toned. It's, it's, it's gray and brownish and cold and the, the snow is kind of brown over these laying corn stalks, and it's it's barren as far as you can see. It's flat and barren, and I'm on this road, and it's just broken and 
filled with potholes and gray, and it's ugly, and the sky is gray. And I all of a sudden find myself standing there in the middle of the road with nothing. And I'm like, wow. And I start turning around. I do a 360 scan, and I turn around, and behind me is this storm that is just so black at the end of the road it's just it's churning it's alive it's 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 the black is like velvet black it's just it's it will consume you as you walk into it okay and i look at that and i'm like Whew, okay not going there and then i hear i turn around and i hear a voice and it says where are you headed and i said without even looking i said I don't know, but not there. And I pointed to the storm. And as I turn around to point to the storm, here's this guy. He's just in rags. And he's just, his beard, he's got a beard. It looks, you know how smoker whiskers look. Yeah, he's yeah. yellow. He's sepia and dirty. He's not a guy you'd, you want to, you know, hang out with. He's this old, you know, bum. And uh, I said, not there. And he said, oh, there's nothing to that. That's, that's, that's where you have to go. There's nothing to that. And I said, that will kill me. He said, no, only because you don't know what's on the other side. And I said, okay. He said, come here. I don't know how, you know, this all happened, but I remember reaching out for his hand all of a sudden, we're flying over the cloud, okay? We're going to the other side. Now, on the other side, it is, it's technicolor. It's, the green is more green like than the Wizard of Oz. It was. It really was. <laughs> it was just powerful in its color and the warmth that was there. And the only thing I could say was, it's so warm here. And the voice said, that's what's on the other side. I said, it's so warm here. And as I say that the second time I turn and he's like made of fiber optics. I only see him just a split second and then I wake up. That was the most powerful dream of my life. And I got up and I grabbed my paints and I started to paint the storm and I've never been able to get it all right. But I can see it as the, as the day I dreamt it. I know what that means, but I don't want to admit it. That day, I'm happy to read a, a letter from Thomas Jefferson to his nephew, Peter Karam. I'm just reading everything I can. And uh, Peter Carr is this kid whose mother died and then his father died. And as his father is dying, he says to Thomas, you are the, you're the smartest, most educated man I know. Can you guide him through his education and, and set him up for the next phase of his life when it comes time? He says, sure. So this is him fulfilling the responsibility. And it says in mathematics, you have to do this. In, you know, in languages, Never read a book out of its, uh, out of its uh, original. first original language because you'll miss too much, blah, blah, blah. And then the last one is religion. And he says, 
when it comes to religion, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close, above all things, fix reason firmly in her seat and question with boldness even the very existence of God. For if there be a God, he must surely rather honest questioning over blindfolded fear. That changed my life. It gave me permission, coupled with the dream of warmth, question anything. There's nothing to that. In fact, that's exactly where you're supposed to go. And once you get through that storm of your life, once you deal with the things you're supposed to deal with, you're not going to believe what life is like on the other side. It's true. How did that trajectory take you from the, the running through the, the radio days to CNN, Fox, and then the now, blaze where you're literally taking control of your own destiny? So I think that if I hadn't have been such a monster in the first part of my life, and had just a touch of fame and just a touch of success. You know, I'm 20 and I'm making, you know, $250,000 a year in the 1980s. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money for a very irresponsible kid <laughs> who's got an ego problem, okay? Not good. That's just like pouring gasoline on my fire. So when I, when I sober up and I actually am beginning to be sober, uh, and I'm questioning everything in my life, and I'm going back, and we're talking with the family. Okay, so let's deal with mom and the abuse and her death and everything else. Let's get that out on the table. The one thing that happens is first an overreaction. You want to be a monk, and you want to give everything up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, and uh, you have that, that overreaction. And then you find yourself on what's right and meaningful. And that Christmas that I couldn't afford for my kids, I was on the ground, laying, laying on the ground in my living room, just feeling sorry for myself. I, I wasn't with my kids. It's Christmas Eve. I couldn't afford anything for them the next day. Um, I'm living in this horrible little apartment that smells like old soup. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm the only person in the, in the whole apartment complex that speaks English. It was like living in the United Nations. And anybody who did speak English was a guy like me who had just been divorced and didn't have a dime. And we just kind of look at each other like, I know, brother, loser. <laughs> oh, and uh, so I'm feeling bad for myself on Christmas Eve. Man, you're, now you're really understanding the sweater. Oh, yeah. My weird CVS and my daughter said, and it wasn't like a hint or anything. She said, oh, I love one of these. She was just little. And it was a little, you know, ornament from um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I looked at the price and I realized I can't even afford that. And um, that just tore me up. So I've lost everything and I, I realize I'm either now I'm in the position of my mother and I am going to kill myself or I'm going to stand up 
and I don't know how to stand up. And uh, I think if it wasn't for my mother's death, I might not have stood up. And also a little bit of my cowardice. Like, I, I'm too much of a coward to kill myself. Um, but uh, uh, it might have happened because um, I didn't know. I was out of options. I didn't know what else to do. At and, this point, you're not working? Or do you? Um, it's kind of okay. complex. All right. yeah. It's okay. So I want to stand up, but I have no model. I have no idea what to do that everything I try goes to crap and I make an account of everything that I, I have lost and I realize the only thing that I have that is the secret to everything, the only thing that is of meaning besides my children, but losing my children is because I've lost this, was my credibility, my name, my integrity. And... I made the promise to myself. I just want someone to believe me. I just want someone when I say I love you or I was here or I did this to not look at me and question because I had alcoholics. We become very good liars. That's all I want back. And I made the promise that I wouldn't violate my integrity. And that was what I think helped me through those years. People who have watched me will say, oh, you did violate your integrity. You might think I did. I really tried not to. I did everything I could to tell the truth. I did everything I could to say what I believed. I tried to do good. And in the last four years or so, it kind of I got to a point to where I saw where society was going. At the end of Fox, I realized I'm, I'm, I'm adding to this problem. And I don't know how I'm adding to this problem because I'm really trying to do the right thing, but I am and it's getting worse. By, you know, 2012 and then 2016, I realized, okay, this is, have everything I done, is it worth anything? Have I made any impact in a positive way at all? And And how do I... How do I, what, I don't have a single answer anymore. Everything I thought was true, I don't know if it's true because nothing's working here, okay? And I don't mean me, I mean in society. It's changing, it's falling apart. And I, I, I've been ringing the bell. I've been trying to be positive. I've tried, I've tried everything I could. I've tried both ways. I've tried to draw a crowd and get people to pay attention so they'll look in, do their homework themselves and, and look inside, didn't work. I've tried to be a peacemaker and try to bring people together and try to be softer in my language. Didn't work. What am I doing? What is any of this worth? And that's what led me to this book. Is there any answer? Is there a way out? And for the first time in a very long time, I'm optimistic I'm a catastrophist, but I'm also optimistic because I know who we are if we choose to be. And so you write this book, and I, I guess our time is uh, ticking yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, looking yeah. at your yeah, eyes yeah. and the producer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's all right. Maybe we can pick this up a second time because I, I know you got to go now. Because uh, I'm, I'm very curious. 
how you've created what you've created uh, and as well as what you want to do with what you've created because I, I'll just kind of wind it down this way. When you decided to go out on your own, I thought, what is this guy doing? It's insane. And you know something? Right now, I am where you were at that moment. Yes. And I need to figure out how to take that journey. And so I'm going to leave it here. I would love to have that conversation with you. I wish I had more time now. That's okay. You you find a time and, uh, and, you know, even if you can, come out to Dallas uh, and, uh, and let's... I'm going to be in Texas. Okay. I am going to be in Texas next (laughs) month. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's see if we can work that out. I would love to finish that conversation with you. Everything's changing and it's good and it's exciting and it's dynamic, but it is full of potholes that people are missing. This is, these are the places that I need to, to know about in order to take this journey. Love it. And so all I can say is thank you. Thank you for opening up. Thank you. Thank you for teaching me to love this microphone. <laughs> it is something that can create absolute dreams and magic and inspiration. And it also has the power to destroy. Respect it. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss, as usual, for nudging me to start this podcast. Also, James Altucher and his producer, Steve Cohen, for introducing me to Glenn. On top of that, I want to thank Michelle Simpson, Tyler Carden, Rob Chickering, and Stephen Pace on Glenn's team. Because of them, you'll be able to see video footage of my conversation with Glenn on the newly formed Big Questions YouTube channel, as well as the Big Questions page on Cal Fussman's Facebook page, as well as the Big Questions Instagram page. How you get to all this stuff? Don't ask me, but I did just master Twitter. You can find me there at Cal Fussman. And I promise down the road, I'll be able to give you all these technological details. I'm still an old school guy, but I'm headed to the new school. Small steps. I know you got to take them, and I want to. People are now coming to big questions from across the globe. So please feel free to send me a photo of the city or town where you listen to big questions. Go to calfussman.com and you can reach me by email. I hope that one day I can find my way to your city or your town and we can clink glasses eye to eye, the old school way. Cheers.